Hello and welcome to What Are You Laughing At, the latest podcast from the British Comedy Guide. I'm Dave Cohen. Joining me today is the stand-up, writer, actor, director, star of The Thick of It, a regular performer on Mock the Week. He once called his Edinburgh show Gentleman, Scholar and Acrobat, and it wouldn't surprise me if he was also all three of them. He's about to star in his own brand new sitcom on Sky Living called Trying Again. Please welcome Chris Addison. Thank you very much, Dave. Chris, nice hello. hello. Yeah, I did welcome. call it Gentleman, Scholar, Acrobat, which was a quote as people of a certain age will understand, from the Pink, uh, Panther. Pink Panther. That's uh-huh. right, it's a Pink Panther theme. Are you uh, an acrobat? I, I'm not an acrobat, right, but okay. on that occasion, that was 1999, <laughs> on that occasion I remember there being, um, there was one show where there was a family of four from Spain in who were just <laughs> staring at me, um, and it became, I, I had to say, do you, are you, are you from here? And they went, they say Spain. And I said, okay, do you, do you speak, English? No. And I said, acrobat? And they, went, and they nodded. And I thought, oh dear. Still, right. there we are. They thought you were Cirque du Soleil. We, oui, but I'm uh, very much uh, not that. Yeah. And in fact, you know, but what we've learned there is that um, the money of confused, mistaken people is as good as the money of the people who are enjoying themselves. So. They didn't That's complain. The they didn't make a diplomatic incident. Well, like, the great thing was, of course, they didn't speak English, so they weren't in a position to <laughs> complain. I imagine they may have contacted their embassy subsequent to the show. Right, but you've never called yourself an acrobat I've since. N- then. Not since, no. No. Okay. Okay. I've noticed that right already in the sort of opening minute, we've managed to go off on yeah, a sorry. great tangent here. We we managed to have a fifteen-minute conversation about sheds before yeah, we started. We are fascinating. What a shame so, we didn't press record on that one. People have missed out on fifteen <laughs> yeah. minutes on sheds. I know. I know. Gold. Comedy gold. Um, we'll talk a little bit in more detail about uh, later about uh, trying again. Oh. But but but, um, but t- t- tell us uh, tell us about this show. Uh, it is a uh, an eight part uh, comedy that uh, I've uh, along with uh, the wonderful Simon Blackwell. Uh, I've, uh, I've, uh, I've co-created uh, and uh, it stars me and Joe Joyner as mm-hmm. a couple who are getting over her affair. We sort of meet them. Uh, about six months after they've, um, t- she's had the affair and they've got back together, yep. and um, and it's that it follows that it's a it's a serial really rather than a series because it's yeah. a proper story, right? Um, yeah. But yeah, we've had it for many. Uh, we we sort of created it four years ago, and it's been lo- as as is always the case with these things. It's been a long journey to to getting it away. Yeah. But, um, I'd like to. I will uh, talk to you a bit later about that process. All right, that's yes, something absolutely. That's, uh, I think it's very, very interesting for people to know how um, a show starts off as an idea, how that yeah. idea then becomes a series. Yeah. So, um, but, but before we um, go on to kind of talk about that, I just want to talk generally about how you, how, how, long, how long have you been uh, performing? But how long have I been performing? Uh, where are we now? It's, it's March. <laughs> so uh, that means next month it will be 19 years since I first wow. stood up. Yeah, yeah so I when, know. Was that when you did your first stand-up? My first open spot was in April 1995, yeah, right, in okay. Manchester, at the Frog and Bucket pub. Right, okay, okay. And how did it go? It wasn't great. Um, I, uh, I'd, I'd not really been to a night like that before. It was, it was an open mic night rather than an open spot during a, a, a regular comedy gig. And I didn't really know what, uh, what the deal was with a, with a night like that. I just, uh, I just sort of wanted to do I knew I wanted to do it. I was living in Birmingham at the time, but I was at home in Manchester for the Easter weekend. And uh, I saw uh, a leaflet 
in a pub for this open mic night that was going to happen on Easter Monday as well. It was regular Monday night, raw, still happens, I think. Mm-hmm. And um, so I went along at Doors, which obviously is way too early for a stand-up gig. And so for a long time, it was just me in there nursing this one pint because I, I, couldn't, I didn't want to you know, be drunk. And uh, the next people through the door were Carolina Hearn and uh, her then-husband, Peter Hook, um, which was terrifying, mm-hmm. uh, terrifying. And when I went, finally went up first after the interval, and uh, all I really remember of that show is dead silence from the audience, and Peter Hook um, with his his chin in his resting in his hand, just staring at me <laughs> like like I'd done something awful. Or I mean, awful. Like I'd I don't know what you know, just like I'd said something like farted in the middle of a dinner party. I don't imagine Peter Hook goes to a lot of dinner parties of that kind, but he had that sort of slightly disappointed aristocratic look on his face. Yeah, well, it had it, you had done your first gig, which by your own admission was probably not your strongest. It was not yeah. good. No, can it you was, remember what you talked about? Uh, I Some think funny observations. I talked about. I talked about. Uh, the difference between sport in real life and the sport that you see on the telly, which was a routine that I did for many years uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, in the end. Um, I think that's all I can remember talking about in, in that. Because you remember yeah. the silences mostly. Though. I do that's remember. I remember that room very well. It wasn't, yeah. it wasn't terribly full, uh, and, but it was deathly, deathly quiet. It was free, Raw. It was a free night. As comedians know, free nights are... Um, they, they present their own special problems because the audience isn't really invested in any way in the show. Um, if you make people pay money... That's why little sort of three-quid three quid in fees exist because it's just, a, it's just a psychological thing to make people think that they've... They, you know, they, they ought to pay attention because they've parted with cash. We might as well stay. Yeah, we might as yeah. well stay, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, and uh, so, so yes, it always presented its own um, interesting challenges, raw. But it, that said, it was a great. It used to be a great night. I compared it a lot in in my early years. Yeah, so you got the you got the sort of bug from that. Did you? Uh... Well, I did, I sort of did. I I mean, I thought at the end of it, I thought this is a disaster. This is awful. It was humiliating, as you know, as death on stage is. It's just awful. Um, but no uh, idea. No uh, idea. But Mr. Dave Gorman was in the audience, so I had no no idea who Dave was at that point because I didn't really know comedy or the circuit. But uh, he was not only already quite a successful circuit comedian, but he was writing on Caroline's show on the Mrs. Merton show, uh, and he came up to me afterwards and said, "This is a rubbish audience. Don't worry about them. You had some nice jokes there. You should do it again." Uh, so after about three months, I managed to pluck up the courage to have another go, and it was great. That's a fantastic uh, thing to happen. Yeah, really, God bless him for that. And, yeah. and I've sort of tried always to say to you know new comics to, to identify the things that I like about what they're doing or if they're doing well, saying yeah, I re- you know I really like that. I really like what you're doing because it does make a massive difference. Yeah. Did you um, go to university and I, do I comedy did. there? Uh, no, I didn't do comedy there. No, I did. Um, uh, what I was interested in then was, um, as I was sort of in my in my late school years and in the time between school and university and at university, what I really wanted to do is uh, uh, theatre directing. That was my big thing. So I did a lot of that when I was there. I didn't really do comedy at all. I was a huge, huge comedy geek. Um, uh, it was my favourite thing. But uh, apart from, you know, wanting to be a theatre director. So that's what I, that's really the thing that um, I got distracted from into stand up. Lots of people seem to end up doing stand up having thought they would do something else. Well, that's true. I think a lot of people end up doing something that they weren't imagining doing at all. I think that's just a natural thing. Um, After 
uh, after I'd graduated, actually, I remember being on, on campus a couple of days later and I bumped into one of my tutors, uh, the brilliant Maureen Bell, who said to me, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I'd, I'd, I'd like to be a theatre director. And she said this thing that at the time I just kind of let it wash over me and it's only years later that I thought ah no you that's very canny she said you know the funny thing about life is that um you think you're walking in one direction because you've got your eyes on a landmark over there on the horizon and you don't really notice that the path that your feet are following is tending in another direction and before you know it you're somewhere you didn't expect to be but it's okay Right. That's interesting that you say that's what you want to be, theatre director. Because yeah. I'm um, thinking with a lot of people who do comedy, mm. um, the, the, most of, most people you can look at instinctively and you go, right, that person, they're a writer or yeah. they're a performer. That, yeah. that, that, that most A lot of people do both, but you look at somebody and you think that person is instinctively a performer, that yeah. person is instinctively a writer. Yeah. You kind of, uh, I was sort of trying to think about, oh, which, which, which are you? And I was sort of, I couldn't quite work out which you were. Really. <laughs> Neither. You, you're, you're, <laughs> it turns you out. You seem oh. to do both. Uh, well, well, but maybe the but, fact that you weren't either. But I uh, think, well, maybe that's it. I, I mean, I think, I, I think that, you know, uh, comedy as we know it now, stand-up comedy as we know it now, is absolutely full of writer-performers. Um, we were slightly ahead of pop music's singer-songwriter revolution. <laughs> um, it's full of because because the code of the new comedy, um, the post nineteen seventy nine comedy, is you, you your stuff has to be original. Um, you can collaborate with other people, but fundamentally, you know, you're having to bring something new to the stage. And an audience in a stand up club or any kind of gig is much more interested in watching a comic who can respond to things that are happening in the room. Which means you've got to have something of the writer about you you've got to have something of that wit about you in order to be able to do that they're not you know the, the as we know the world is full of stand-ups who use stock put downs to hecklers that they encounter and they and these become really obvious where do you learn to whisper in a helicopter i remember my first drink all of those things you hear them all the time um, but uh, and an audience will absolutely laugh at that. But what they really want is something that they know is just born in the moment and won't ever, you know, be repeated anywhere else. Which is a sort of uh, that's um, a double-edged sword. That I can remember doing a gig on, on a was it the last tour I think maybe, um, and uh, there was this woman in the audience who was so drunk. I mean, so drunk, and she made herself. Uh, obvious right from the start you know shouting out and um she was she was very drunk but was at least able to answer you know we could hear what she was saying um and i spent 10 minutes riffing on what she was saying and the audience loved it loved it loved it and i i knew as i ended that section i thought god i've got an hour and a half now to do of written material and none of it because none of it however good however crafted it is um however you know much i've worked out the performance of this this will not fly in the way that the first 10 minutes have because yeah, that's, that's always going to be the thing that tops everything else. Yeah, that's what I always... Uh, I remember asking Al Murray about that because Al is the sort of... The, yeah, the, the, king the, of that. The man who's kind of built his live show on uh, getting stuff from the audience and yeah. then uh, just, just watching him weave in and out of, of the material and and weave the audience yeah. members into it as well is, yeah. is, um, is quite amazing. It is interesting. It's the last show that I did was the first one where I deliberately tried to put something in where I would talk to the audience and I asked them about... As I was talking, I was telling stories about lies that get told and I was asking them for their own examples. And as, you know, as with any set of audiences, some of them were great, some of them were okay. Um, uh, 
But it's the first time... I think it's because I watched Dara do that. I've seen him sort of seed three moments into shows where he'll ask a question. And the question's an interesting one and you, you know, you're going to get a, a, a fascinating answer back from somebody. Um, particularly if you're playing the kind of size venues that Dara has, you've a much larger sample to you know people to to choose from. It's fascinating doing that. It's much more fun for the for the comedian. I used to really relish coming up to that bit. It's a challenge, um, uh, but it and it keep but it keeps the, the keeps you on your on your toes. Um, I think in sort of in future shows, I would be inclined to try more of it actually. And it's kind of through Edinburgh, really, wasn't it, that you're you you, you started to get more recognized yeah I, but that's i mean you know i i um i started in the mid 90s um when stand-up wasn't the massive thing it is now it was pretty big it wasn't the massive thing it is now but edinburgh was always and all, and already the um it's a trade fair that's what it is as much mm-hmm. as it's a festival i know people get really uh, people get quite angry about that that description of it and i don't mean that you know you go up with the intention of um well, some people do go up with the intention of selling themselves and selling their show and getting on TV and all of those kinds of things. Some people just want to make the best show they, they possibly can because it is still a festival. But the fact is that um, it's, it's, like the, it's as though it's the one time of the year, really, when um, the people who you could sell a show to leave their offices to go and see comedy. They could go and see it in London because it is here, it's available, it's very easy to get out and see it, but for some reason they prefer to trek 400 miles um, and, and do it. And of course now that, you know, now that comedy, the sort of comedy production is much more disparate, there's a lot of it in Manchester, for example, um, you know, it's a good place for everybody to go. So, but the other thing is that it's, it's the place that you can develop as an act, I think. Not just, it's not just a question of hey, look at me, here I am. It's a question of what can I do now? What can I push myself to do? Because if you're a circuit comic, you're spending uh, 20 minutes a night or maybe 30 if you're headlining some places um, uh, doing a a set. That's as long as you get. Um, And some clubs are extremely severe about that, as we know. You know, the junglers of this world get very cross if you go over a particular amount of time. Um, So... But the challenge of putting an hour show, which is the standard Edinburgh uh, length of a show together, the ch- ch- that challenge is much, much, much bigger than putting together a club set. You quite often see comics make the mistake of bunging three sh- sets together, three 20 minutes together, and calling it a show. It isn't, and you can tell it's not a show. It's really hard to put an hour together. It's hard to get from... The, the leap from 20 to 40 minutes is quite tough. The leap from 40 to 50 is really hard, actually. That's... Uh, and then the fi- 50 to an hour is kind of hard, but I think it's the 40 to 50 yeah. because that straddles the point at which an audience yeah. will lose concentration. Yeah. Somewhere around the 40, 45-minute mark, an audience will lose concentration. Yeah. So you're looking to end your show, you're looking to end your set at 40 minutes at the point where they're naturally likely to be down. So yeah. you've got a big challenge there. Um, and and there are challenges that aren't just aren't the same as as doing a club set. Um, no one's warming up for you. You know, you, how do you make you know in a in a an environment where there are five hundred shows or whatever it is, and a vast majority, by no means all, but a huge number of them at least, vast plurality maybe of um, of uh, those shows are by 
uh, white middle class boys of one age mm. or another. Yeah. You know, how do you how do you make it stand out? How do you make it technically interesting? Yeah. How do you make it? You know, you and I never had that problem. Of no, course. luckily, of course, yeah. that's right. That's right. <laughs> Being, Being black. And, that's uh, right. Yes, from, and and women and yeah. Um, yeah, it's been yeah. it's been very helpful. That. Yeah, and that there is that point, and I, I always reach that point, even with. Uh, my favourite comedians who I always looked forward to seeing, the, the, the looking at the watch moment, which yeah. is the, uh, oh, how long has this been? Oh, yeah, yeah. 40, 45 yeah. minutes. And um, actually the only time that I never looked at my watch at a gig, it was, uh, I was dragged um, many years ago by some friends they said they'd got they'd got tickets for peter k and i thought oh bloody hell peter yeah. k oh, i don't really like him yeah and uh i said all right i'll come along to the show and i went along and i was enjoying it and, and someone stole your watch uh that's yes that, <laughs> that would be uh that would be one of the uh things that happened yes that bloody peter k audience yeah, oh you, you can't, can't trust them can you <laughs> but no I was, I was watching it and thinking yeah this is all right and then yeah. and then he went and good night and i Oh, I'll admit. Yeah, oh, well, that's, that's, he did an hour, and I, you know, I he did it. And it's I a great testament, is, isn't it? Uh, yeah, great testament. What a, what a, to him. Yeah. yeah, testament to him. So, um, but but yeah. So you did how many how many years did you? Uh, so I figured it first? out. So I did I did sort of two shows before I did the the, the sort of the traditional route. At my point was that you would do, um, you'd go up and do a. Uh, a, a showcase show like the Comedy Zone that Avalon who were my agents put to, they weren't at the time but they sort of put together a, a three acts and a compare late night show in the Cabaret Bar in the Pleasance and um, that was at the time that was the only one that was really happening and it was the uh, one that everybody wanted to get pioneered by comic abuse I think you'll find in 1987 well there we go we were the first one all the best ideas but you yeah. didn't carry it on though did you? well we toured when, it for about two years after right. that, but that and was, who was uh, that? it was you and who was Ivor was the pair and it was Phil Cornwall and Felix Dexter and wow. myself. Yeah, wow. So, uh, there you go. Yeah. But but then but um they would change the lineup obviously every year yeah. for, for that. That was a th- that was the thing to do. So I did that, although the year before that actually in ninety five in ninety five, me and my, my best mate, um who at the time was being vetted to work at the Ministry of Defence, uh took a double act up. Um the, the venue, C venue, that we'd done a lot of student plays at, and I directed student plays at, and so on, uh, offered us a free slot at uh, 9.15 in the morning, uh, <laughs> which was death, I mean, which was a ridiculous thing to do. But, you know, with that kind of uh, the folly of youth and, and that sort of, you know, those weird dreams in your in your head that lead you to believe this will be okay. Uh, we said, yeah, yeah, we'll do 11 days of a double act. At, um, and I wrote it in about three days, and we rehearsed it twice, and it was awful. It was hugely super self-indulgent. But I did two sort of spots of stand-up in the middle of it. <laughs> that was 95. And then, oh, 96, I did all the competitions. 97, I did Comedy Zone. And then I, after that, I did my own show. So I did two shows in the next two years and then I started to do shows there was, those were straight shows and then I did ones that were kind of themed after that and I think there were five of those all in let me just count them off in my head yeah five mm-hmm. yeah so they um, it was kind of so through seven. through that as you say that, that, that kind of trade fair notion of, of, of Edinburgh which is not a, a bad thing I mean it is, it's a fantastic trade fair to be at and it's amazing what you see but I mean I presumably you started that's where you started to get a lot of interest from yeah. TV and radio and yeah things. absolutely it was yes and from agency I mean it's where I got an agent and all of those nowadays you know there's a there's a, a, people get agents very very quickly 
because um, there's a there's fear there's a there are f- there's fear amongst the agencies that, that they'll miss someone so people get snapped up very very quickly. It's a, but Edinburgh always was a little bit of a feeding frenzy, but especially around the competitions and so on. Um, but I yeah, so I got a I got an agent out of Edinburgh and I got in, uh, interest from Radio Four from Edinburgh and so on. That was which was very helpful. I do think, but you know, one of the ways that it's really useful that. Um, festival is it's a deadline it's a it forces you to do something and it forces you to push yourself um so although trade fair makes it sound awful um because you have to set yourself apart because you have to make it really really good um it it does you know quite quite aside from the fact that there's no, actually if you just, if you book a show and you get take out an ad in the fringe program you set yourself a deadline already the the alt- you either have a great show by that point or you look like a dick so that ought to be enough actually of an impetus yeah. to to um yeah. to make you right yeah. or you think you've got a great show as no, well no well yeah absolutely but or you you've either done the work or you haven't and 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 you get found out very very quickly and that, but that and that's the useful aspect of of Edinburgh but yes so i did um i i got uh interest from radio Four, who particularly they wanted to adapt I did a show called The Ape That Got Lucky which was ostensibly a show about evolution and uh, they wanted th- that was the thing that they were interested in John Pigeon who was the um, who was the head of radio uh, the radio comedy department at the time um, uh, gave us a pilot me and my co-writer Carl Cooper um, uh, a, a pilot to develop that show which yeah. became a series in the end yeah yeah, no, I remember. And you worked also, didn't you, with um, John Oliver and uh, Andy Zoltz? Yeah, John and Andy and I did a show called The Department. Um, that was probably a little bit earlier, maybe, than they, they got lucky. Yeah, that was an, an interesting show. I'd love to go back and remake The Department, mm. knowing what I know now about how to make stuff. Right. Um, it was. It's a. It's a fascinating show to go back and listen to. So what it was was we wanted to make a show that was satirical but not topical. Because an awful lot of satire is very weak, topical. Particularly at the time, you know, all you really heard was George Bush is a is a bad man. <laughs> laugh, laugh, laugh. Uh, or you know, John Prescott is fat. It's very boring. Um, and we wanted to make something that was about that was sort of. Uh, because a lot of a lot of topical satire seems to imply that the only people at fault are the political class, rather than you know the rest of us who are also actually deeply at fault for the problems that that exist. And it's it must be a nightmare for the political class dealing with the numpties that are us. So uh, so we had a, a show called The Department that was about a fictional, presumably, uh, government uh, non-governmental department. Uh, a non-governmental organisation that really runs the country, and we were a um, we were a team within the department whose job was to try and find uh, kind of solutions to problems like health, transport, terrorism, uh, and um, so we that ran for about three series. But we when we played these three idiots in this room who were constantly getting it wrong. Obviously, that's the that's comedy. That's how that works. Uh, but um, but it was it's listening back to it. It's really dense. It's, there's jokes on jokes, bananas on bananas, as Jesse Armstrong calls it. And uh, and it's you have to kind of unpick it. You need to listen to it about four times. Yeah. I'd love to go back and put some air in it and make it a little bit more, a little bit lighter. Yeah. 
as a cake. Yeah. It's a heavy cake, that He's, shell. Well, John, you get in touch with John now. He's well. Uh, you know, we still uh, we still own the format for the department. It's still uh, there, available. I mean, t- John's a little bit busy getting his new uh, HBO show mm-hmm. uh, ready. Twenty nice. sixth of April, yeah. I think it yeah. goes out. Um, yeah. You didn't. Um, you, you, I mean, potentially that was a kind of route you could have maybe gone down. You know, what the the, the, the the sort of going over to the states and uh, was a, a, a point at which. Uh, I suppose so. I mean, you know, they came and they the the Daily Show came and everybody sort of went in for an audition um, for that because they wanted a British correspondent, um, and they brilliantly chose John, who's perfect. I mean, it's just the perfect gig for him, and you know, um, uh, and he he was so good last summer when he he stood in for John Stewart for three Mm. months, just brilliant. And uh, and now you know now he has his HBO show coming up, which I'm very excited about. I think it will be really good. He's yeah. perfect of all the people. It's him and Andy really are the are the ones. Him and Andy Zaltzman are the ones yeah. who should be doing that I stuff. I love Andy. Oh, love he's him. Andy Zaltzman is he might be the most underrated comic in the mm. country. His just his invention is astonishing. He's and he's so prolific. I think he's brilliant. They have a podcast, a rival podcast, although it's you know it's just a podcast. It's not a rival, is it? It's not doing the same thing called The Bugle, uh, which goes out every Monday and it's uh it is it remains just a high point of internet comedy, I think. It's yeah. been going for years now. It's so yeah. good. Mm, hundreds hundreds of episodes they've done. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no. It's excellent. So, but we'll, um we'll talk about that in a bit because I because um, what then happened wasn't you, you? You began this relationship, uh, I suppose, with Ar- Armando, yeah. which I suppose began and led to sort of thick of it and Hollywood. Where, so there was you, you, there was a sort of chance of becoming a an LA brat. But before you became <laughs> LA brat, is lab rat. There uh, was well, that, no, see, actually, see lab, I do I, see what you've done. Good, I do see. I was just would have worked really well written down. Over that, it. That, that, that took me ages to think. That <laughs> <one>. <laughs> um, it was, it's very much a written joke, but I like. I like. I like yeah. your. I like the just, just the fact that you did it. Thanks, thanks. Because it was ne- yeah. It was either now or it was exactly. never. There was happen. never. There'll never be another time right. that I can use it. And you have to do that. And yeah. that's Okay. That's, that's so how we know you're a true comic. Thank you have you. to get the joke out, no matter what the cost. Exactly. Yeah. No matter that it's not funny. As well. <laughs> but never mind. Um, so yes, you're saying with uh, that you worked with. Uh, you, Armando before that then. So. Yeah, so the sequence the sequence of events. Well it's sort of it, it's it's caught up in the stuff that John and Andy and I were doing. Um they the two of them opened a, a night which still runs uh and it still still runs called Political Animal. It'll mm-hmm. be running next month and it's at the other belly over the summer. Um a, a stand up show about uh, you know, geared towards politics. And um so there was an, the opening night uh I was on. It was the three of us, and Rob Newman was on, and uh, I didn't really know what to do. I didn't. I thought actually, I don't have anything that's specifically political in my stand-up. So I wrote. I, I wrote and performed the first time I've ever done this. I was. I wrote and performed the character Doctor Tristan Harding of the Mail on Sunday. Never done that before, uh, or since. And um, Armando came to that show. Still is in all our ten years of working together. It's the only time he's ever seen me do stand up. So, I think in his head, he uh, he imagined that was the kind of thing that I that I did. And then we um, did uh, the news quiz together. The first time I ever did the news quiz, which was produced by Simon Nichols, who went on to do the, We Got Lucky and then Labrats on the TV. And uh, and 
Um, in those days, I don't know how it is now on the news quiz, but in those days, the last episode of the series would always be on the road somewhere. They'd take it out to a theatre, some a regional theatre somewhere. And we went to the brilliant uh, King's Theatre in Southsea, which is un- amazing. I love that place. Anyway, um, and afterwards, we were having dinner, and Armando had just done the the Great British sitcom thing where he'd championed Yes Minister and we were talking about that I love Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister I just I think they're unbelievable pieces of writing and um, we were talking about that and he said yeah I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of doing a sort of modernish take on it um, and we discussed that for a while and I was saying I think it's a really good idea he said well you should come in come in and um, come in and chat about it I went okay and then th- that was July 2004 and then in October having forgotten all about it uh, I got a call saying will you come and do this audition uh, which Arm wasn't at, actually. Adam Tandy, the producer, was at. And I'd never really enjoyed any castings before that. I'd, I'd found them embarrassing and hateful things. I'd never expressed the desire to act to my agents, but they would always put the, put me up for these things, I, I, which I think they just do with comics. Um, and then and it was it was an improv thing where, you know, I, uh, Adam and I had to do this bit of improv where I was sort of trying to protect my minister... Um, from an inquiring uh, civil servant, and it was brilliant fun. It was in this weird place as well. It was in this like it was like a tiki lounge. So we were surrounded by this sort of fifties Hawaiian American kitsch. It was bizarre. Uh, uh, doing this stuff about a Northern Irish minister, and um, and then I went away thinking, well, that was immense fun. Uh, anyway, and thought no more of it. And then in the December, I got a call saying, yeah. You yeah, come in, come in uh, in January, and we're going to make that show. And so that's how that that's how I kind of I, I hooked up with him. But that was before Lab Rats happened because right. it was Armando who Armando who uh, got Lab Rats off the ground. Right. In yeah. fact, yeah, yeah, and that was um, I guess that was a, a sitcom audience. It was sitcom. an audience sitcom. And um, what the, the way that we developed that show was that uh, we'd written. Um, the Ape Got Lucky for Radio 4 as a four-part sort of series of comic lectures. And I did the sort of lecturing. Um, uh, we had the brilliant Dan Tetzel and Joanne Wright doing illustrative sketches. And we had Jeff McGiven as um, Professor Austin Herring, uh, who was this sort of talking head character, uh, this insane talking head character who was the professor of everything and written a book on everything. Um, and what uh, and Arm heard it and he said, what interests me is the relationship between you and the professor how do we you know how because we'd said we'd like to do the show on tv and he went why would you do a lecture on tv what's that what try and have a look at that narrative thing and quite quickly we um we came up with this um this lab with with a with professor john mycroft as he became um (coughs) who's the sort of titular head of it who who who's won the nobel prize 20 years ago and doesn't has done nothing just sat on his ass ever since uh, but he's, he's good to have on the letterhead. So he's there as a pain in the bum. Uh, Joe Enright was the sort of space cadet um, lab assistant. We had um, Dan Tetzel as this uh, angry, wound-up, uber-aggressive, uh, highly right-wing lab assistant. And we had Selena Cadell, who is, again, just one of the uh, the great unsung comic actors. Uh, she was fantastic as the Dutch, the inscrutable Dutch dean. And uh, the brilliant Helen Moon as this weird secretary, and it was an audience sitcom. And uh, before you know, when at the time when no one really, I think the IT crowd started just before we did, um, 
but no one really was making audio yeah. sitcoms. They yeah. weren't they weren't fashionable. Which is, but Carl and I, who wrote it, we wanted to make something that we wanted to make something you could watch with the whole family, and we mm. wanted to make something that we used to watch when we were kids. I think that's what I mean. What what I saw of it, I remember thinking this is uh, this would be great as a as a kids show. Yeah, it sort of it's yeah, it would have been yeah. It was sort of slightly sold a little bit more, kind of as as well like you say as an audience sitcom yeah. and also and that kind of um it it it, it did suffer didn't it as, well i think it, the, the, there are lots of problems with labra some of which lie with us um you know because it was because one of the things i learned there is you you think well you can do things first time people can do stuff you can you do, absolutely you can but we had a first time writers first time producer first time director which is it's yeah. not a great combination. You need some. You need some experience in there, um, and so uh, it, that that was a mistake on our part. Um, uh, but also, yeah, it was in the wrong place. Really, it was. It used to follow mock the week, which is the worst place to put it as a as a yeah. show. It's. It was ideally suited for a much earlier audience, much more uh, earlier time slot, a much more family oriented thing. And the funny thing about it is the the sort of expectations that people bring to it. Because Armando exec produced it, and I was in it. Um, people imagined it must all they could think of was the thick of it. So uh, so it was so very far from the thick of it in almost every aspect yeah, yeah. that they found that quite the the sort of expectations were were a bit difficult. The funny thing is, it did okay in terms of viewing figures and in terms of the sort of audience appreciation index that uh, that. Um, commissioners fetishize it did really really well uh particularly in terms of the latter it was fine um but it just people didn't take to it and i think there are lots of there are lots of flaws with it there are lots of things that i'd like to do differently um there are lots of things about it i'm very proud of actually and i think it's still a couple of episodes really stand up um but yeah there are things that i would i would do differently if we went back and did it again i think there is a that there's remains a kind of uh, snobbery about audience sitcoms. Yeah, totally. But, uh, certainly among reviewers. And... Oh, but, you know, I was talking to somebody, I was doing an interview with somebody the other day, and um, they were saying, you know, the audience sitcom is back. And I was saying, say, it isn't back. It's never, it's a thing that people say. It's never been, it means you're reviewing audience sitcoms because Miranda's making them and, and Mrs. Brown's Boys is this extraordinary hit. But actually, all the time that, 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 these, that the thick of it was being made and the office was being made and all the things that people love were being made, my family was being made. Nobody loves my family. It is a deeply unloved programme. If you were to read the reviews and if you were to look at comedy uh, forums and so on, it is, you know, it's, it's criticised and disdained and disowned and nobody likes it. And to be honest, I don't think it's very good. But it used to get seven or eight million people mm. watching it. Well, it was. It was actually the first three or four series. They got uh, nine million. There you go. So that's a huge. That's the by far yeah. and away the most successful comedy on the television. It was an audience sitcom all the way through the times that people that that people were saying we need single camera stuff, and you know. And the other thing is, if people are all making single camera stuff, isn't it more interesting to make something that's not that? You know, mm. I think that it, it you should suit. You should try and fit what the, what suits the material. You could have shot Lab Rats as a single camera, I think, and it would have been an interesting exercise to do that. And actually, if I went back and did it, I'd be I'd be interested to see how that worked. I'd like to do that, do it that mm. way. But it felt to us very much like it was a like it was a big silly cartoony audience sitcom because we wanted to make a big silly cartoony thing. Uh, 
and you know um single camera stuff works really well if you're making um if you're making w1a or if you're making 2012 or people like us one of the john morton things you couldn't put a john morton show um uh not well not those john morton shows uh in front of a yeah. studio studio audience it just doesn't make sense it doesn't work because it's yeah. about nuance it's about performance it's about littleness but whereas you know whereas in something like the it crowd you know you kind of you need that audience to be there people think oh i don't i don't need to be told where to laugh but actually if you didn't have the audience there the performances would be very different and you would have a very different show we should talk about this when we go on to trying again actually because it became a huge conversation whilst we were making that show about how you how the presence of an audience and not um affects the way that you uh deliver a joke and mm. deliver a line well, there's a whole thing as well about how uh, a show on the night when you're there on the night yeah and it's just the same thing with stand-up as well which Absolutely. is how um the the you can be at a recording of a show and yeah. it can just be the most fantastic yeah. thing you've ever seen. And I, I've had that experience of being yeah. involved in uh, audience sitcom and being yeah. there on the night and thinking, oh, I can't wait yeah. to go home and watch yeah. this on telly in a few weeks. And then something something vanishes, the magic of the, the moment. It, it's partly to do with gone. the magic of the moment. That's a fascinating idea. I think... So I, um, as somebody who's been to sort of castings on both sides of the table... The thing that I found out by being on the side of the same side of the table as the camera when you're actually auditioning other people for a role, what I've discovered is it's almost no use um, uh, paying attention to what they're doing in the room. Doesn't matter. I, when we cast Lab Rats, the, we, we saw this one actress for the Dean, and it was brilliant. I mean, it was so brilliant. It was so exciting. Uh, we th- we thought we found it. We found her, and we we took the tape. Excuse me. We ran. Round the corridors of uh, Television Centre to uh, to the to slap uh, Armando's offices, slap slightly amusing productions, uh, slightly amusing programmes, uh, and uh, the slap unit. There used to be signs all around TV Centre saying "slap unit" this way, and there would be. I remember there being in uh, in Ariel, the, the in-house uh, um, uh, magazine. There was a letter saying, "What is the slap unit? What is this?" It was slightly amusing programmes, and. Uh, but we we ran in with this tape going, we've got it, we've got it, we've got it. And we put it in the machine and it wasn't there. It just wasn't there. We pressed play and what came out, something, the magic was somehow got left behind in the glass on its way out of the telly. And that definitely happens uh, with, it used to happen with stand-up all the time. You know, in the 90s, um, uh, in particular in the 90s actually, uh, TV companies were obsessed with trying to make stand-up work. And there was the stand-up show on the BBC and ITV did all kinds of really cheap, uh, let's go down to the actual clubs and film it, let's try and get that smoky, intimate vibe. You can't have a smoky, intimate vibe because that's not the experience that the people are having watching that TV show. The When stand-up actually started to work on TV was when open mic productions started live at the Apollo and what they did was they said, well, let's make it into an event. Let's make this the biggest, most exciting show you wish you were sitting in. So, so there's dry ice and there's, you know, there are the, there's the, the name of the show in lights and it's a big production number and on they come to a rock track and there's a huge audience and they're cheering and it feels great because yeah. they've managed to, you know, somehow that forces the magic through the glass. Yeah. But it does get stuck an awful lot of the time. There is no knowing in the live performance of something 
how it will seem as a TV show. Yeah. I think some of the uh, comics that developed as well as a result of that, for instance, the uh, I know he's much much maligned by other comics, but Michael McIntyre, I think, was uh, one of the first comedians that I saw on mm. that show who seemed to be working the audience and the camera sort of equally yeah. and was actually... Yeah. Um, you you could see that he was giving as much to to the to the camera and that that's kind of where i i felt it sort of took off and almost to to another level really yeah. was that he he kind of lift, lifted it absolutely no there's there's no doubt that he's he's a properly great tv comic and live live comic um whatever you and people people really don't like his stuff or no some people really don't like his stuff and the and the re, there are a number of reasons for that one of them is um it just might seem a bit you know mainstream for them people who are really into comedy can be quite snobby and you know i count myself amongst them i'm, I'm guilty of this as much as anybody else but we can be quite snobby about uh, well no that's a very yes well i've heard that i mean it's very boring i mean i know all that yeah whatever um most people haven't most people aren't you know aren't as fascinated by the nitty-gritty of comedy as the as the people on the on the, the internet discussion boards and that's that's fine so that's why his stuff has a has a broader appeal if you can look beyond your own sort of of boredom with with whatever it is that he's doing actually and i have to say i find some of the things that he does some of the routines are terrific some of them are genuinely great observations that are brilliantly delivered whether or not you like his stuff it's so well performed mm. it's so as a performer he is astonishing and uh, and it's the same with peter k he's another one you know that michael's sort of taken the place of peter as the person as the go-to you know uh, pinata for for comedy snobbery but um but uh you know peter k stuff it's not for me it really is not for me at all um but it's but you can't you can't fault the way the the man delivers it it's mm. amazing it's amazing the amount of work that's gone into making that two or three minute routine just look like right. something. I mean, that that's part of the, the incredible skill yeah. is that it, <clears throat> it's so good. And it's that yeah. thing when somebody comes and sees you uh, performing and they say, oh, yeah. I saw you last week. You're doing exactly the same thing. And then yeah. it's a, in some ways, it's a compliment because it's like, oh, yeah, because yeah, you just thought I was making that's it right, up as yeah. I went along. But there are two things that that makes me think of. One is that... Um, uh, you know, comedy has to sort of hide the workings. It's it, one of the reasons that it's not, um, it, it's not a sort of highly appreciated art form, is uh, there, is because um, it has to look like we're not trying. It, otherwise, it's dead. It's absolutely dead. It's like magic. If you can see the wires that the, the woman is ha- is suspended by, well, there's there's nothing. There's no wonder there, is there? And and the same with comedy. Comedy has to work incredibly hard to hide. Uh, all of the pulleys and the ropes and the cogs and the and the machinery behind it and it's really intricate you know the work the work that's gone into it is extremely um you know long and precise and hard uh but you can't make it look like that you have to make it look light on its feet you have to make it look like it's coming in in the moment almost to you that has to be that has to be part of the 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 feeling that that an audience gets and that's true actually even with things like um you know sitcom and film those have to just look like you know somebody sat at a typewriter and went there you go and of course it isn't that um but the other the other thing is that even when you're involved in it yourself even when you know that's what happens and you've had to do it and even when you're aware of the the horror of staring at a blank piece of paper or having binned a show and knowing you've got to start again from scratch and what that means um 
it, it's very, very hard to sit watching another comic and think, oh, that's the process that they've been through. It's really, and partly from paranoia, you think, and you think, oh, they can just do it. Those people can just do it. It's just easy. It just comes easy to them. Mm-hmm. That's just that's, oh, and partly because you just it, it, it's just part of the. It's just how you react as an as an audience member to something is you watch the thing that you're presented rather than unpicking it as you go along. And so I think a lot of the people who watch Michael McIntyre and Peter Kay uh, and go, oh, aren't really thinking about the sheer volume of work that has gone into making yeah. what they what, what they do work like that and work incredibly well. Conversely, if we come very nicely now to the, the thick of it, which yes. uh, was partly improvised, wasn't it? Well, yes, it was, but but I think we, uh, but there are two again. There are two things there. One is not as improvised as people always want to make out. I think we uh, that's often said to the detriment of the brilliant writing. And uh, secondly, it's improvised in the spirit of improving stuff of, of working on stuff so it's it, 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 the impro- so what would happen the process was we'd go in we would have a, a table read um which is to say a, literally, quite literally everybody reads around a table and uh so we'd read the we'd read the script uh then we'd put it to one side and armando would say okay um without the script let's do that scene or even a scene that's not in the not in. What happens if this is a new character? What happens if uh, what happens if Vince Franklin's character meets uh, Malcolm? You know what 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 then? What will that look like? And you know and, and then Vince and Peter would get up and you know improvise a scene and um, and the writers would be there writing down anything that they felt was useful in terms of character points or lines or whatever. That would get fed back into the next draft. But at least you know, at least eighty-five percent of what you saw on the screen was copper-bottom, rock-solid, brilliant writing by originally um, Jesse Armstrong and Simon Blackwell and Tony Roach, with a bit of help from Ian Martin and Arm, and and then you know, latterly the the the, the college has expanded, um, particularly as we've gone over and done Veep, but uh, but um, you know, the the writing is really really key. You can't you can't do that improv without the without the writing underneath it and and you know when we when we were improvising things it's, it's partly to do with the fact that um you know the, the thick of it goes through so many drafts the thick of it did in the loop at veep they go through so many drafts and one of armando's huge strengths as a as a creator of comedy is that he just never ever says until somebody says stop it he never says that'll do yeah. So you know, it, it, the, it, until the pressures of time bring themselves to bear, he doesn't. He he never says that's it. We've got that. And well, he does actually. That's not true. He does. He will go if he knows he's got the thing. It will be great. But he will always keep working. He'll keep looking. He'll never say that's good enough. Now I can. Now I can rest. So all of the improv, all of the writing was, you know, it was it's it's constant really. It's funny they 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 gave um they published a book a few years ago of the thick of its scripts which is the first series in the specials but they're not scripts they're not really the thick of its scripts they're transcripts they're what you mm. saw on the screen right. yeah. so they're, they're, they're you know they're, they're what they're somebody sat after it's been edited and, and typed all that out and i was looking at those scripts and thinking they're so very different what you get in that book to what was in the final shooting script the final shooting script is only really a guide anyway for what happens 
when you're shooting because things are rewritten the day before and you know the the yeah. sides that you get the the pages that you get for the next day are not necessarily what's in the complete script but also um very very far from the rehearsal scripts you know the, the, there's it, there's working and working and reworking right. and the and the and that notion of oh, it's semi improvised seems to suggest sort of belies that notion i think yeah i mean but presumably when it when you did the uh, movie version mm. Um, that brought in a whole whole other area. So it was that was that much more kind of tied down. No, no, oh no, no. Um, it was brilliantly done. Um, they, I mean, it was completely like making the thick of it, but with more money and on a larger scale. Right. Um, you know, uh, I remember doing the first read through that we did, which would have been, I don't know, quite when it was. It was a few weeks before we went into production. The first research we, we did uh, in uh, BBC Films in Euston Road, and there were various people who were sort of standing in. It's brilliant, just brilliant actors standing in because, you know, it hadn't been cast. Um, or the Americans couldn't be there. So we had, you know, we had, like, Sally Phillips was there and Tony Gardner and, you know, and Lewis McLeod, really, really, really good people, all of whom I could I was thinking, why wouldn't you put them in it? But, um, but, uh, but what my main memory of that read uh, my two main memories are that it was four hours, I think. Right. And that the script arrived in two taxis because it took so long to print out that uh, they had to send one taxi ahead whilst they spent the next sort of hour and a half and let, allow us to read. <laughs> and they were thick, telephone directory thick things. It was extraordinary. Um, so that, uh, uh, but, but that, I think that process was, was slightly kept under wraps from uh, people who were part of the film process who hadn't been part of the TV process that might get a bit nervous at a script that size and not understand that you yeah. know, this is the way that we do things. With the thick of it and with um, In the Loop and latterly, but to a slightly lesser extent with V, that so much more is shot than is actually, you know, make, makes it to the screen. Um, the first cut of In the Loop was four and a quarter hours long. <laughs> Um, so, and it, the final film, the final film, including the credits, is a hun- is an hour and forty five. Right, so, right. You know that gives you some idea of, of right. the, the you know of how untied was that, down was it that was. Deliberate or was it just? Oh my god! It's part of the process. It's just yeah. part. It's part of the process. An awful lot of the story, and the emphasis and the weight of the story is found for these shows and that film in the edit. Um, Matt Strevens, my friend Matt Strevens, who produced, uh, I think he's produced this series of Silk, but he did the series of one of the series of Skins that I was in and Misfits and Being Human, all of those things. But he says there are uh, three opportunities to tell the story. One is in the writing, one is in the performing and the shooting, and one is in the editing. And the third one is the most powerful of those three, is what he says. And I think it's a really good description editing is the most underrated of all the kind of cr- creative um aspects of bringing a bringing a a, a story the story of a film to to screen and um and an awful lot of uh what we've always done or what arms always done on the thick of it and so on is down to um is down to the down to the edit we're editing veep at the moment and it's always fascinating you know the first assembly of uh, of an episode of veep is generally between 45 and 50 minutes long and you're really? looking to make a 28 minute show oh, right. 
Um, and uh, so, you know, subplots come out. Characters kind of die on the floor. Yeah. Um, uh, but you're left with an awful lot of choices and permutations and possibilities. Yeah, you're not actually in Veep, are you? No, you, I'm not in just, it, no. You, you no. directed... Uh, I've, I've directed some of it, yeah. yeah. And uh, have you been involved in the writing? Or? Well, um, no, I mean, I've overseen... I've, you know, I give notes on scripts and so on, um, but I've not sat there and bashed out the dialogue and and um, and done page by pages or anything. But I, but you know, part of my part of my job on Veep is to is to um, be be across, as people say, be across the scripts. Yeah. Mm. Do you find that a kind of unusual uh, situation where you've been for so long, you the people? That you've worked with, uh, you, you, you have a, a different relationship. The director must have a different relationship. A little bit. I mean, um, no, yes, and, yes, and no. I think it was very, it was very odd on the thick of it initially when I did a, an episode of the thick of it as a director, which I also was in that episode due to a scheduling mix-up. I was supposed to do one of the episodes that was purely the government and that, that Ollie wasn't in at all. But as it turned out, because of um, another thing I was doing at the time. I ended up having to be in the episode as well, so it was a very peculiar thing. It was it was certainly odd to be in a scene with Peter and then say, uh, "I think that's great," but his, I mean, it's odd enough to say to Peter or Rebecca or any of them, "Loved what you did, thought it was great." Just one tiny thought, and so on. It just seems so presumptuous. Um, but I, I love directing. I love all of. I never watch a show, a film, or a or a play or whatever without thinking, "Oh, I would." Yeah, yeah. Mm. and was without wanting to tinker. Training that you did as a as a theatre director. Well, there was no sort of training. I think it's just the way that I'm built. I'm right. a, I'm just a busybody and um, a control freak, uh, and those things work quite nicely for for this. So so I right. so as soon as I put the the headphones on and sat behind the monitors with in the thick of it, um, it felt right. I thought, oh yeah, I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing now. Yeah. Um, but but it's. Another of um, Amanda's great strengths. I wrote a blog post about this actually. It went on the occasion of the last ever thick of it going out. Um, he's very collegiate, and he's very his way of working is extremely collaborative, and he's brought all a, a whole bunch of new people through. So, so in the, in terms of the directors for the last series of the thick of it, he did one episode. I did one, but Tony Roach, the writer Tony Roach, did one. Billy Snedden, who is the editor, did one. Na- uh, Natalie Bailey, uh, who's a terrific, um, you know, just starting out as a director, but she'd she'd started out years before that as Armando's assistant. Uh, you know, uh, uh, was directing one. The writers around the table, Ian Martin, who was doing a website out of Lancaster before um, before the thick of it began and you know and he and 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 sean gray again again was armander's assistant people that arm has sort of brought through and developed and said you'd be good at this have a go at this um and because we've all sort of come up through that system um through the the academy of armando um there is a sort of uh we've been knocking about doing this stuff for 10 years so we're 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 very comfortable with each other creatively it's possible to sort of say well what about this and i mean that's why that's why simon and i ended up making another show together is because yeah. you know they're the, they're the people I naturally think of when I think about who would I like to collaborate with creatively yeah. let's uh, we'll, we'll, we'll come, come to that now actually we'll talk mm-hmm. about um, trying again so it, this you, you've said it's taken four years for this uh, show to, yeah, I to, think it's four Simon and I were yeah. trying to work it out the other day it must be three to four years it's taken since we since we 
Did right. it? And we, how how did it all begin? Well, after Lab Rats, Lab Rats was I loved doing it, but it took an awful long time. And it took me sort of out of circulation for kind of nine months. It takes six months to write it, and then you've got to shoot it, and you've got to edit it, and all of those kinds of things. So uh, it took me out of uh, out of circulation for a long time, and it's heartbreak as well to get it up and running. It's a lot of effort, as well, you know. So, uh, so uh, I wanted to get back at that point. I'd um, for various reasons I'd not been able to do stand up properly for a few years. There was one year when I did seven gigs, and it was beginning to frustrate me so um i wanted to get back out on the road and i uh i didn't want to be sort of sitting in an office trying to create a show and um so we th- I, I, we thought what i was talking to my agent and we were saying why a, a good thing to do would be to find something that i can be in and that my colleague can write um because um, at that time, especially as the thick of it was quite popular, Simon and I both wanted to uh, do something, and it felt like if we if we both went in together to meetings, that it would be a slightly more attractive prospect because there's two people that you might be interested in working in working with rather than one. So, but we've you know we, Simon and I have been good friends for many years, and and have and share a, a very similar sort of sense of humour, and and um, we both wanted to write a sitcom sort of relationship sitcom so we sat we literally sat in a room and went okay we know we want to make it about a couple now what what do we not want to make it about what do what do we really want to make it about we didn't want to make it about boy meets girl we didn't want to make it about um young people uh we didn't we we wanted to make something initially we were thinking we want to make something about I kept coming back to that phrase, the long littleness of life, that just the life admin, just the little, mm. you know, when you're long enough into a relationship that the, the, the kind of, you know, the sparkle is, it, the everyday is taken over from the romance, really. Um, and uh, so we started to talk about how we might do that and what would be the, what's the, you know, and we talked about how there's a point in every relationship a few years in where people think... Is this one? Is this the one? Is this it? Is this right? Do I stick with this or should I get out now and find something else? And it's a big sort of moment of crisis. It can be a quiet moment of crisis. It can be major. It can be explosive. But people do go through that. Um, and we, we talked about that. And, and, and we, but we, we wanted a device. You know, what do people do at that point? They have, um, sometimes they have a bit of a wobble. They have a bit of a fling sometimes. And once we struck the idea that one of them had had an affair, it be, we thought that might be interesting. When we thought, oh, she's had the affair, suddenly it, it felt like now now we've got a show. So the thought process was li- was literally that. It was just kind of general to, to very specific. And there was that one point, the point where we went, she's had the affair. That, uh, that, that we, something went ding in both of our heads. We were excited by that. And when we started to tell people, yeah, we're thinking we might make it about... Um, uh, a couple getting over an affair that she's had. Everyone went, oh, oh, because you've mm. not seen that much. You see yeah. men having the affair all the time, but not the, not the women. Um, so that was, and then after that, very quickly, we we thought about where we wanted to set it, what kind of lives we wanted them to lead. Um, we knew that we didn't want to set it in London or anywhere near London. I had an extraordinary conversation uh, with somebody early on in the process. Saying yeah, we don't want to set it in London. They went, oh right, yes, nothing, not 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 in, not in London. Yeah, not in London. Wow, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, so maybe 
maybe one of the characters that really wants to get to London. No, no, London doesn't <laughs> come into it in any way. Oh, yeah. oh right. Oh, so oh, maybe their sister's gone and they're a bit jealous. No. This is just like most of the country. They don't think about London and they don't care about London. Um, it's not. It doesn't even. It's not even part of their brain. Um, so uh, we knew we wanted to set it in a small town. We knew we wanted to set it out uh, in. We we knew we didn't want the characters to be. Quite often at the time in sitcoms, you would see characters who were clearly analogues of the writer or writers or people they knew so characters would always be teachers or publishers or in advertising or something you know and live in impossible west london houses and uh, we knew we we wanted people who in simon's phrase had jobs and not careers so she's a receptionist and he works in a, a tourist information office and they're just they're very happy mm. they're very happy like that but they're but um and so and once we got the set that idea in the setting um from then then you you start to realize you need certain things you need you need confidence confidants you need uh, antagonists um who so who are those people going to be and what's the, what's the specific situation what was her affair what's the jeopardy why does it why what what drives the the what makes the situation awkward why how can we make it so that the wound hasn't healed and all of those sorts of things so you, you and you construct so each of the characters kind of you're you're looking to find a character that fills a particular need in a way um and but they came quite quickly actually part um we knew we also we knew we wanted uh my character Matt's love rival the 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 man that she that Meg's had the affair with not to be a villain we wanted to make it so that you might think, oh, okay, I understand why she did that, and and we don't, you know, immediately see him as this terrible baddie. And in fact, when we were casting it, um, everyone who came in to read said, yeah, one, I remember one of them saying, I turned over the paper, the page, expecting the whiff of sulphur as uh, as Ian turned up, and now he's just a really nice guy. Yeah. Um. So, uh, yeah. So, uh, so that so the the first story, the first script came relatively quickly. Um, and we took it to the BBC, who sort of undenied about it a bit, and then did a thing that broadcasters often do when they're uh, when they're not certain about something. But I think it I think it never serves the material very well, which is that they they want to have a, a table read. Table read. I knew you were going to say that. And the problem with the table read, as well you know, James, the problem with the table read is what that so. A cast is assembled around a long office table uh, under flat, fluorescent lights. Everybody's got a script in front of them and they're looking down at the page and they're not, um, you know, no one's performing it. Um, And the executives sit in there and everybody else sits in there and it doesn't have the atmosphere of anything. It's Mm. not fun, it's not funny. Um, And so it's very, very easy to come away from those things thinking, well, that's shit. When it isn't, it's just... It's just, you know, it's 10 o'clock on a Wednesday and you're in an office and you've got a meeting to go to and, you know, it's not it's not a good way of doing it. So um, we managed to persuade them, the wonderful Kath Gagan at Avalon, who's been a champion of this project for many years, uh, uh, managed to persuade uh, the BBC to leave Television Centre for... It, it wasn't her, she didn't close down television centre that's not what I'm saying so, but on this occasion just to leave it and come down the road to there's a fantastic pub a theatre 
a theatre pub in Chiswick called the Tabard, yeah. you know, which I love, and that's where I've sort of put uh, shows together. Um, and so we emailed my mailing list and said, "Come down and see this thing." Even though it's not an audience sitcom, we just wanted to show them that people could laugh at this, because that's what the League of Gentlemen did with Psychoville. That's how they got that away. Right. So we said, "Come, come, come down." And and so uh, we cast um, uh, a. Uh, we we cast it. We did a sort of rehearsed reading with the producer, and it was sort of semi acted out, still with scripts and what have you. Um, some of the some of the cast who are still in it, who were in the actual show, with, were in that, and that was two years ago at Christmas, I think. Yeah. And uh, it went really really well. And then eventually the BBC turned it down. Uh, fair, it's fair enough. So we took it to Sky Living, um, who within two days said, "We'll have eight, please." Right. Um, and that was that was when we were in the middle of filming the last series of The Thick of It. Uh, and uh, so then the process of writing another seven um, had to take place whilst Veep was going on and The Thick of It and all of those things. So so Simon's written um, uh, the vast majority of it. Tony Roach has written a couple of episodes as well. Uh, right, yeah. <coughs> I've seen one episode. I, oh, I, have I, you? I like, yeah. Oh, I cool. Saw the first, I oh, Caroline the, showed you. Caroline yeah, Norris, our producer. Right. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I liked it's um, it's sort of, it's nicely understated. I thought I yeah. was I was thinking um, ever decreasing circles. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, we I love ever decreasing circles. It's a very that's uh, an underrated show. Um, You're not quite the same. No, we're not the well, Richard Martin. It's, it's about that's about a sort of middle aged marriage that's crusty, isn't it? A bit, and, yeah, and yeah. Uh, Richard Bryant's the obsessive. It, it's sort of like the 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 um, the, the challenge. That they, uh, the writers sort of set themselves was uh, Richard Bryer's the most loved uh, comedy performer. Yes, let's, let's make him the most horrible, uh, yeah, awful person we can because he's a fantastic actor, Richard. Yeah, Bryars, oh, he's and, wonderful uh, the, 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 across Shakespeare and everything. Yeah, and uh, they, he managed to be this character who was Martin. a sort of prototype guy with Asperger's really yeah um, even before people really knew what Asperger's was uh, he uh, it's a fabulous fabulous show and Peter Egan as the handsome yeah. neighbour who's mm. the sort of vision of the the life that Penelope but, Wilton could lead yeah. uh, it's great that I love that and there are there, I suppose there are aspects because we are my my um my love rival is uh, the wonderful Charlie Edwards, who uh, was in Downton and was also, but more importantly, was Palin in Tony Roach's Holy Flying Circus. Right, and um, right. he's fantastic. And you, but you look at Charlie and you think, well, there's a handsome, charming, debonair man. You can completely see that's the life that Meg could lead. She, he's a much more successful version of, of my character, really, yeah. in some ways. Um, but yes, it is. It is understated, and that's what I was talking about before. One of the challenges for us was, um, so uh, we did do some table reads for, purely for ourselves, purely for Simon and Tony to be able to hear the words, because it helps writers, doesn't it, to hear the words said out yeah, loud. Yeah. You know, it's yeah, yeah. all very well having it in front of you on the on your computer screen, but it's it's really good to be able to hear people say them. Um, so and you to know, hear people laughing at them as well, right? And that gives you that's some there's so much confidence to be got from that, isn't there? Mm. And and so we there was one where we had to do all eight. We had all eight of them in a in a day, and and the room was completely full with people I've never seen before or since. Uh, some of them connected to the channels, some of them connected to the production company. All these hugely full of people, um, and it was getting big laughs, and it was going really well, and we were very buoyed by it. 
what was interesting about it was we then we started to we started to film it. We went up to set in Kendall, so we spent the first two weeks on location in Kendall. We went up to Kendall, and um, Joe Joyner, the wonderful Joe Joyner who plays Meg, she's stunning in it. Um, Joe uh, and I, we did our first scene. The, the very first scene of the whole show is uh, that we filmed was Matt and Meg walking along by the River Kent in Kendall on their way to an appointment, and. Uh, we started to do the jokes that we'd done a couple of times in read-throughs and in, um, in uh, you know, rehearsals. And suddenly we realised that you can't do the jokes as though you're at a read-through. You, when, you, when there are people in the room and there's an audience in the room, you, land, you, you, you launch the jokes and land them in a very different right, way. Right. So uh, because... Uh, and it, and it's, it's bigger. It sounds more sitcom-y to, to do it like that. If you start to do that when there's no audience there and it's just a single camera, it begins to sound wrong. It begins to sound weird um, uh, and, and too gaggy and too sitcom-y. Uh, especially if you know what what we were after with the show was we wanted some you know, the comedy to come from kind of real life we wanted it to feel real uh but if you make it if if you don't emphasize the joke in any way at all if you re- just keep it completely flat uh, it becomes you you lose the joke if you so it was finding the point between uh sitcom and nothing um, was was the big challenge all the way along to ma- to make it feel like it's real people talking the way that real people would rather than comedy characters saying funny lines, which is a, a slightly different thing. Um, uh, that was that was our that was our biggest challenge. I think I hope we've we've pulled that off. Um, and there are you know there are bigger characters around. You know, uh, there's uh, my sister Gail, who's Meg's best friend, who's. Uh, Played brilliantly by Lizzie Barrington and um, uh, and the wonderful Alex McQueen uh, is uh, Meg's passive aggressive co-worker, um, and you know, and they're much bigger yeah. characters, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, much more like you know. So they're allowed to do they're allowed to do big stuff. But even so, you know, Lizzie Barrington with Gail, you could play Gail massive, you could play her big and brash, and it would definitely be funny. But she sort of um, she does it in a different way. She does it. In a way that you totally believe that's yeah. how that woman would be. Yeah, uh, it's, um, and uh, it's um, I suppose uh, one of the things that um, I was thinking about the, sh- the show, um, and we, we, you know, we've, we've talked a lot. We haven't even begun to talk about things like mock the week. And, oh god, yeah, I do uh, go on. I do apologise. No, no, it's, it's fascinating. But um, the the, um, the the thing that that does sort of get me a little bit about Sky though so you know you've got you've got you've got a very good profile through mm. uh stuff like Mock the Week which is which mm. I guess you would say is kind of a, a sort of bread and butter mm-hmm. sort of job yeah. compared to the other stuff but well in that it's in that it's um it, it's a sort of on it's an ongoing thing Mock the Week and it's and it's also um it's rooted in stand up which is where that's that's where I'm from so in yeah. that sense yes yeah so it, it it must be quite frustrating, though, when the thing you know, the thing that you really, obviously, you know, four years of your life, yeah. you, you've put so much heart and soul into it, and it's kind of going to go out on Sky Living, and it's, yeah. you know, it'll be, you know, at, at, at its best, you know, yeah. going out. Yeah. You, you know, you make there's been two or three shows that yeah. and Sky made a lot of shows in the last three years. Yeah, they have. Yeah. There's been a so couple credit. of slightly. But it, yeah. even the big shows that break through from Sky don't get that sort of audience, and you don't no. get the kind of recognition. And... No, they don't. But um, but 
there, firstly, it, it's um, it's a slightly different televisual landscape now in that, um, not you know, shows don't. Not many things do get that kind of recognition. Not anymore. Not really. Um, and so that's a, that's a risk that you run anywhere. Um, uh, but also, the other thing is that the experience of working with Sky has been so positive um, in, uh, from a creative point of view that I don't care about that. I mean, I, I do to an extent. Obviously, I, you know, I'm very, mm. I'm very, very proud of this show. I love it. Is exactly what. I wanted it to be, and that's really hard. You rarely get to say that. That's mm. that's a huge testament to the team that Caroline Norris, who produced it and has produced Horrible Histories and Armstrong and Miller, and is a phenomenal producer. The team that she put together, the director Ian Fitzgibbon, everybody involved in it, the cast. It, it looks like I wanted it to look, but Sky could have could have got in the way of that if they'd wanted to because that's what broadcasters sometimes not always broadcasters do have a tendency you do hear stories about that sort of thing happening they they were so good you know i think with another channel we'd have had many more notes we'd have had we'd have had to change an awful lot of stuff that would have made it into the show that i uh, our version of the show that i might have liked to have made and what i've ended up with is um eight episodes of the show that I that I wanted, and I'm I, you can't I can't put a value on that. That's a wonderful thing to be able to have. So the people who see it will see the thing that I, that I you know I want them to see. And I will do my damnedest uh, along with the Sky Marketing Department and my colleagues uh, to drive as many people to to watching yeah. it as yeah. as possible. I you know I'm. It's funny, you know, you don't always want to promote the things that you're involved in. Sometimes there are things I've been very fortunate actually. Most of the things in my career I've, aren't things that I think, oh dear. But you know, it wasn't that uh, I wasn't that keen on doing um, interviews for Doc Comedy uh, mm. back in 2000, let's say. Yeah, but it was, um, it was different. I it was different. I mean, it wasn't very good. And, and that was down to channel notes actually. Um, the show that we set out to make was a, would, the Doc Comedy would have been fine, but it got noted to death um, and uh, and became dreadful. So. Uh, so, you know, we'll do our best to make us get, get as many people to watch it as possible because uh, I love it and I want people to see it. Um, but uh, no, I, I I know what you're saying, but I am I'm just delighted with yeah. the way it's worked out with Sky. What about the the, uh, the classic liberal dilemma of working for Rupert I Murdoch? I don't and... care <laughs> uh, about that. I'm not. I, I don't have. I know that that will you know that will once again release the Twitter hordes and what have you, but. I don't particularly mind. I I think that um, I'm not a fan of Rupert Murdoch in any way whatsoever. I'm not a fan of his of his. Uh, it can be, it can be controversial, model. Chris, but you know, well, it's not. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah. I know yeah, it's. I know. I think that's a bit I, bit too far you've gone there. But what I am a fan of is what is Sky's um, Sky mm. are investing in in things in in creative. British stuff in a way that we we should be grateful for. We should be happy about. But you know, Sky Arts, what Sky Arts shows when it's not showing Andre Ryu, uh, it's brilliant. You know, they they put you know they did those live plays. They commissioned writers. Uh, that's a fantastic thing for that channel yeah. to be doing. But we don't we don't really like to talk about that because it it, it doesn't sort of fit with our our you know our liberal view of what we hope Murdoch can be so we can we can entirely attack him and in addition as somebody who's involved in comedy it's been brilliant to work with those people because um and I don't you know and those people work at Sky 
but they aren't sky. They're not. They've not been squeezed out of a little pod, uh, a little Murdoch pod or anything. They are. You know, they they are people who've worked at other channels. They're people who've worked in comedy for many years, mm. um, and broadcast in, at other broadcasters. Um, and I, I always think, and I, this it, it was the same argument, really, that I had with people who objected to me taking on an advert, which is that. You know, art has always been subsidised by, you know, by um, the people that you wouldn't necessarily want to subsidise it. That's the truth about it. You know, everybody had patrons. Shakespeare wasn't working in a... Shakespeare wasn't, wasn't you know, going, no, I won't take any of that money, actually, I think. I, I just want to make my stuff. And uh, if you go to the National Gallery and you go and look at those old Italian masters, you will see that some of the saints have the, you know, have the faces of the people who paid for the paintings. <laughs> it's, it's, art doesn't exist outside of that. It should. It absolutely should be able to. It would be a brilliant if in this country, and indeed in any country, we had a state that was much more supportive of uh, the arts in general, it would be fantastic if there was if we lived in a country where um, where the you know some kind of much more worth was ascribed to people, but you know going into artistic uh, lines of work. But we don't, we don't, we do not. The BBC is constantly under attack. It's constantly having to shrink the amount of money that it can it can pump in, pump into things it is largely under attack from um you know from uh, uh vested interests it, mu- it must be said um but you know the government isn't helping with that in any way whatsoever it's, the government don't seem to be interested in 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 helping out the arts in any way whatsoever because we live in a time of austerity that's the that's the that's what they're saying although it's always kind of been this way a bit so yeah. i don't really mind i don't i i understand people's objection i'm not thick i do get it i do it's not black and white it's not clear and not clean but i think good for the people who are um putting the money into art of mm. whatever kind yeah that's true i mean the simpsons of course is a yeah that's never have everybody loves that Rupert yeah. Murdoch. everybody loves that and that yeah. you know there's and it's hard it's really hard. I mean, you know, it's hard to unpick your life from uh, those sorts of vested interests. I recognise that it's different to, to, you know, knowing where every piece of grocery that you have comes from or every investment that your bank makes is on your behalf is and so on is is slightly different to saying, yes, I'll work with that person or that person. Yeah. I do understand that. But I but, you know, I'm I, I'm not. I'm not as bothered about it as a lot of other people seem to be, yeah. and um, if I recognise that that will lose me some friends and some followers, but I will live with that. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's incredible the range of innovative stuff that's come out of Sky in the last well, sort of couple of years. They're putting their money where their mouth is, so mm. good. So good for them. I mean, yeah. I think you know, and they're it is. They've they've been they've been they've been great. They've they've just they've picked people and said, "We like you. Um, have a go." Fabulous. Yeah. Good. That's brilliant. So, well, thanks, Chris. Just just before we we uh, come to the end, uh, we've got we're, we're going to do a little thing now. This is our sort of desert island ah, yes. discs moment. Now, uh, we've we're kind of trying to update uh, desert island discs here. Now, it's, uh, instead of the the idea that you're on this kind of luxury island uh, in the middle of nowhere, it's uh, will be a bit more kind of twenty first century. There's been a nuclear holocaust, right? Oh the God! Whole of the world has been destroyed. Oh, this sounds Apart awful. Apart from you, and you've got your oh. But you've got you've got one 
special comedy thing oh, that no. you're allowed to keep. It could be anything. It could be a, a show. It could be an item or a book or whatever. And so, so what's what, what's the what's the single comedy item that you would uh, choose to take with you on this nuclear holocaust journey? The one comedy thing that I could take with me. This is a really really hard choice. I think it's it's between. It's between. Am I allowed to say that, or do I have to? Is that mm, slightly? I don't know. I might. Have to, I haven't really thought this through. Yeah. Gonna... Okay. So we make we're making the rules up as we go along. Yeah. Yeah. You're, um, you're the. This is the pilot version of this, actually. So we'll see. Okay. I I think it's probably John Morton's People Like Us. All right. In both forms, if I may, Uh, I'll take the radio if necessary. But but I think it's it was a complete revelation to me. It's one. There are times that you can see. I'm seeing Python for the first time. I remember seeing Billy Connolly for the first time. I remember seeing uh, Vic and Bob's Big Night Out, which would have been my other candidate for this, uh, because that was a moment of. I was sort of 18 at the time, and that was was a moment of deep joy. It was so. Fantastic! Mm. Big Night Out was so fantastic. Uh, never, no one had ever seen anything like it. It yeah. was wonderful and hilarious. Um, I loved everything about it. Uh, but I think maybe, I think maybe people like us is, uh, has made me cry laughing. And it's so packed full of peanuts. It's so full of. It's the best written, acted, edited, directed thing. It, it's phenomenal. It's very hard to get hold of now, mm-hmm. um, but it's it's and it's you know if you're a fan of 2012 and WA and you haven't seen uh, you haven't seen people like us, do yourself the favour of getting it off eBay or not Amazon or whatever wherever and um, yep. it's so it's it's beyond wonderful. I yeah. I've, I remember the first time I heard it on the radio. It was the airport. Uh, episode and I had to pull the car over. Yeah. I actually had to stop my car because I was laughing too hard. Mm. Yeah, yeah, excellent. Oh, well, that's a perfect choice. I heartily agree with that. Good. Chris Addison, trying again. It's uh, starting out on twenty uh, fourth of April uh, at uh, nine o'clock with a double episode on Sky Living, right. um, and it's uh, it's a grown up romantic comedy, but it's not fuzzy. That's mm. how I was. The say. box set. Inevitably, we come to <laughs> well, with a very funny joke about box set at the very beginning of the first episode, which I love. Oh yeah, that's right. Yes. The first joke is a box set joke. Yeah, You're quite yeah, right. Very yeah. Funny. Well, I hope you, I hope the lovely people enjoyed. Anyway, yeah. there it is. Thanks very much. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. 